We read this morning in Holy Scripture from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. On the basis of that passage in particular, as well as 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, we turn our attention to Lord's Day 6 of our Heidelberg Catechism, considering this morning the questions 16 through 18. Speaking of the mediator and deliverer that we must seek for, question 16 asks, why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Why must he in one person be also very God? That he might by the power of his Godhead sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Who then is that mediator, who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the quote from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your Savior? Who is your Savior? The Heidelberg Catechism, in unfolding for us the gospel of our salvation, would identify that one who alone could save us. And it would do so in such a way that by the work of the Holy Spirit and through faith, we know and embrace him who was sent by God to reconcile us unto himself. Last week, as we stood before Scripture, seeing there our own inability to satisfy the justice of God we were pointed to the particular kind of deliverer we need. He must be one who is a real man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who's also very God. And so this morning, as the Catechism very carefully unwraps this package that would reveal the wonderful gift of God that he has given us would have us understand, first, why our mediator and deliverer must be the kind of person whom we alone must know as our Savior. But the Catechism looks at what kind of mediator we need because it's looking at Christ from the viewpoint of our salvation. There are other ways to look at the Christ of God. He is, for example, the firstborn of every creature. 
That's Colossians 1. He's the first in God's eternal counsel. Which is to say that in God's eternal counsel, all things follow from him and serve the revelation of God's own glory in Jesus Christ. Christ is also the one by whom all things were created. To view him from that perspective would emphasize both his deity and his sovereignty. So there are different ways in which we might look upon this Christ of God and consider who he is and what he is like. But the Catechism discusses the necessity of Christ and the natures of Christ from the viewpoint of our salvation. And therefore, as we treat Lord's Day 6 today in its first three questions and answers, while I do intend to get to Hebrews 2 and what is expressed in the first two questions and answers, I would begin by having us stand before the fullness of the Savior's glory as revealed in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. So this morning, I proclaim to you Emmanuel, our mediator, We notice what he is to us. Secondly, how he is our mediator. And finally, from whom he comes. So first, what he is to us. When the Catechism finally asks the question, who then is that mediator? The one who alone can save us. The one who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man, it points us to our Lord Jesus Christ identified in all his fullness in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 with the words, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. First of all, let's notice here that we have a confession of faith. You must not overlook that. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. You must not say that without believing it. Our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's the one to whom we belong. Do you believe that? What's your basis for believing that? I tell you what it had better be. God's word and God's work. We'll consider the place of God's word in our knowledge of faith when we consider separately question and answer 19 of Lord's Day 6 because truly the Holy Spirit of Christ works by the word in giving us the conviction that we belong to this faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, the apostle speaks of him who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God determined that. 
you must know that God gave you to Christ and his eternal decree. He did so sovereignly, out of the freedom of his own will. But when you make this confession, that this mediator is our Lord Jesus Christ to whom you belong, then not only did God give you to Christ, he gave Christ, his only begotten Son, to and for you. He was given to set us free from the bondage of our sin and guilt and to make us right with God. Our Lord Jesus Christ has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is the source and fountain of our complete salvation. Note well, not a partial salvation, not that of the ability to figure out what we must do in order to be saved, Not he gives us righteousness, but then leaves our sanctification up to us. This Lord Jesus Christ, whom we confess as ours, is the source and fountain of our complete salvation, and that according to the sovereign purpose of God, the God of our salvation. That's our confession. But let's look at this a little more carefully. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 reveals our Lord Jesus Christ as the fullness of all those things that we lack as those fallen into sin. And he begins with wisdom. Wisdom. By nature we are foolish unrighteous and corrupt. No matter how you were to look at the human nature, as at us, as fallen human beings, from whatever perspective you might choose, there is the opposite of what God requires of us. But our Lord Jesus Christ stands in such a position before God, that he can fulfill, and he alone can fulfill, all that God has required of us. You understand, I trust, wisdom is not to be equated with common sense. Nor is wisdom the same as knowledge. You can't have wisdom without knowledge. But they are distinct, and wisdom requires not just an intellectual knowledge, it requires a spiritual knowledge. There are many who know their Bibles, but who know not Christ, who's revealed in these Bibles. There are those who can argue doctrine but who know not him who has revealed himself and his work by that doctrine. Knowledge is to know Christ with the intimacy of true faith. To know him 
by standing in an essential relationship with him. And that as he has revealed himself to us by his word. Wisdom is a fruit of faith. The fruit of standing in that faith relationship to Christ by which we can know reality according to the word of God. We can apply the word of life to the various circumstances that we face. Again, apart from Christ, our lives are characterized through and through by foolishness. The natural man denies reality. The natural man substitutes his own conception and calls it reality. He deceives himself. Apart from salvation, God gives him over to his own foolishness. But in the place of all our foolishness stands Christ, who is wisdom personified in Proverbs chapter 8. He is wisdom. And in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, we are told that he is made unto us wisdom. When you are united to him by faith, he gives you a new perspective. A perspective marked by wisdom, guided by his word. This Savior, to whom we belong, you do, don't you? is also made unto us righteousness. For us, righteousness is to stand in harmony with God's revealed will, his law, innocent from all transgression. We have seen that by nature we're not only full of unrighteousness, but we daily increase our sin and guilt. Innocent we are not but to be received into God's favor, we must be righteous. And in the face of our hopeless state of unrighteousness, the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 points us to our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us righteousness. In place of all our unrighteousness, stands Jesus, the righteous branch, in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, by his atoning work and taking our unrighteousness to himself, even to the death of the cross, he merited for us righteousness and life. And God imputed Christ's righteousness to us. Christ and his perfect work has become our innocence. We didn't earn that. There was nothing we could do nor can do in order to obtain that righteousness. God made Jesus our righteousness. But his work doesn't stop there. Don't ever make his work stop there. 
in place of our corruption, which corruption characterizes us through and through, stands him who is also our sanctification. Have you fallen into sin? Even sin, the nature of which you thought would never ensnare you? Have you struggled with particular sins? Do you know this Jesus who has been made unto us our sanctification? In him, we not only hear the declaration of our innocence, the pronouncement of our righteousness, but in him is the power to free us from the corruption of our sinful flesh. He is the one who alone can deliver us in such a way as to make us holy. He adopts us as his children and works in us in such a way, such a wonderful way, by his word and spirit, that we begin to look like him. That's the power of faith. Faith rests upon the entire Christ, embracing him and all his benefits. His blessings are mine because he is mine. And then the apostle adds redemption. Christ is made unto us redemption. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, that's listed last. The end of those series of things which reveal Christ as the fullness of our emptiness. But its name lasts for emphasis. Its name lasts because wisdom and righteousness and sanctification are ours as the fruit or the outworking of our redemption. We saw earlier from Scripture that there is no salvation apart from redemption. The justice of God must be satisfied. We must be redeemed from the curse that we called upon ourselves when we rebelled against God. There's no possibility of being taken into God's covenant family, no possibility of our adoption by him, there can be no conversion, no faith, except we are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Everlasting life must be earned. And we can't earn it. That's been established by Scripture. We've seen that the last couple weeks. We have nothing with which to pay the price for our infinite offense against the perfectly holy and righteous God. But the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has made him our redemption. Do you see then what he is to us? What he is to you? 
He's not a partial Savior. He's not one who only made it possible that you be saved, leaving the rest to you. He alone makes possible your salvation. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But he carries out and accomplishes what he has made possible. And he does so from beginning to end. Wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification. Is he that to you? Who is your Savior? Faith believes in him. Faith rests upon his perfect work. Faith lays hold of this Christ. Now as we return to the outline of our catechism and its treatment of this wonder of grace, we are led to the identity of our Savior by looking at how he can serve as such a mediator for us. The last question of Lord's Day 5, which compelled us to look for a mediator who is very man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who's also very God, would have us face the question first, why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? And the answer is, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Human sin requires human satisfaction. We can't substitute sacrifices of our own making. We considered the error of the Old Testament church in that connection last time, failing to look to the promised Messiah as the fulfillment of the sacrifices required in the Old Testament law. Some thought, that they could purchase God's favor by their offerings of bulls and goats. And God rebuked them. Animal sacrifices will not do, nor anything else we might try to substitute. Nor can we make that satisfaction. A sinner cannot pay for the sins of himself, let alone others. So we saw last week that the mediator and deliverer that we must look for as our Savior must be very man and very God. True man and true God. But in Lord's Day 6, the Catechism would examine the reason. And this is where our reading of Hebrews 2 this morning comes to the foreground. The fact is, there have been many, many heresies concerning the person and natures of Christ that the church has had to face throughout the centuries. Some of those heresies might be revisited in connection with Lord's Day 14 and Christ's virgin birth. 
I don't intend to examine them here. They all come down to a denial of Christ as a real man or as real God. But this is Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Verse 10 refers to God and his eternal purpose. The idea of that word became, for it became him, speaks of a necessity. It's not a necessity imposed upon God as some necessities are imposed upon us. We might be compelled, even forced to do something, That could not be said of God, who's absolutely sovereign, but it's a necessity by the determination of his own sovereign counsel to save his people in Christ, to bring them to glory. He determined that his only begotten Son become like them in all things, sin accepted. In the words of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he who was rich, eternally rich, in the glory of his deity, became poor for our sakes, that we, through his poverty, might be rich. Those riches, in the words of Hebrews 2, include being partakers of so great salvation, made sons and daughters of the living God by the grace of adoption and the wonder of regeneration, sanctified and brought into glory. Think of the wonder of that for such sinners as we. Again, for that to happen, God's justice had to be satisfied. The payment of our debt has to be made in full. So that mediator and deliverer that we need must not only be truly human, but also perfectly righteous, for one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others any taint of sin any stain of unrighteousness would have made him subject to the penalty of the law. But Emmanuel, our mediator, serves our need. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Hebrews 7, verse 26. Now listen again to Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. Forasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, 
he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people, that is, those who were given him by the Father, and therefore those whom the Father determined to sanctify and to bring to glory, it was necessary that Christ be made like us. He took on him the seed of Abraham. Those expressions demonstrate with emphasis the truth and reality of Christ's human nature. He was a man, and such a man as we are. That was necessary, says verse 17. It behooved him. It was necessary that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest according to God's eternal purpose. And in fulfillment of the priesthood, as a merciful and faithful high priest, he made satisfaction of divine justice by offering himself as the sacrifice in our place and for us, so making reconciliation for our sins. But then we also have to face the question, 17, and its answer, why must he in one person be also very God? That he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. A mere creature, even a perfect man, would never have been able to sustain the burden of God's infinite wrath against our sin. Sin that because of his perfect holiness is an infinite offense against God. You see, whether you are faced with the false teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses or any other form of those ancient heresies that either denied or diminished the Godhead of Jesus Christ, you are dealing with those who really have no true conception of the, of the seriousness of sin against God. They deny, really, the righteousness and holiness of God himself. And if we should deny the seriousness of our sin against God, 
we would make ourselves susceptible to the same denial of Christ. When we examine our sin, when we see the depths of our sin, as we were led from Scripture to see in our treatment of Lord's Days 2 through 4 of the Catechism, we are given to see that the magnitude of our sin and misery is such that only God can save us. The ransom required for our salvation is that of infinite value. The payment necessary to atone for that infinite offense against God that has been caused by our guilt and sin. So God gave us Emmanuel. God with us. Our mediator. He's not an imaginary deity. He's not a human being adorned by God with excellent gifts, even gifts that, that are above angels and other human beings. He is the one who said in John 10 verse 30, I and my Father are one. The Jews knew what he meant by that. He was declaring himself of the same essence with the Father. That's why the Jews would stone him. But his identity points to the astounding nature of the work required that we might be saved. But there's another important truth involved in the need for Christ to be not just a real righteous man, but also very God in one person. For he not only has to obtain for us, but must himself restore to us righteousness and life. That's something only God can do. Who among us can give life? Not one. Only God can do that. Only God can give life, and that more abundantly. By bearing the weight of God's infinite wrath in our place, our Lord Jesus Christ earned for us that righteousness and life. He paid the debt satisfying God's justice. But he not only obtained that for us, he must apply it to us, restoring to us righteousness and life. Here is where much of modern evangelicalism goes astray, following the dark pathway of ancient Pelagianism and its its spiritual descendant, Arminianism. The common belief today is that Christ earned salvation by his perfect obedience. But whether that becomes meaningful to us depends on what we do with it. 
our Christ not only earns salvation, he applies it. He's the complete Savior. He applies it effectually. It's he who sanctifies, Hebrews 2 verse 11. And who delivers those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Verse 15. Redemption in him is redemption he both accomplishes and applies. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. That is Emmanuel, our mediator. Finally, let's not overlook from whom he comes. And I refer you once again to the quote from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, in question and answer 18. Of God, Christ is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Of God comes our salvation. And that truth magnifies the wonder. That God, who is eternally self-sufficient, full of joy in his own triune life. That God, who had no need for anything or anyone outside himself, should create a people in Christ Jesus to take into the fellowship of his own life and love is a mystery the magnitude of which we shall only begin to see in heaven. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul, after addressing the saints at Ephesus with a salutation and benediction in his epistle, immediately proclaims, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Emmanuel, our mediator, is the one in whom we stand as children, adopted, partakers of the riches of God's grace, according to the pleasure of his will, and that to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1 verse 6. And therefore in our Lord Jesus Christ, and in his incarnation, is revealed to us the very heart of the covenant of grace. In the incarnation, God and man are united in the perfect 
bond of fellowship and love in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Christ our head, we are taken into the covenant life and fellowship of God himself. The Lord Jesus expresses it in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 22 and 23. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are. One, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. God purposed in this way to bring many sons unto glory through Emmanuel, our mediator. To belong to him is our only comfort in life and death. Amen. Our gracious Father, we give thanks to thee for the wonder of thy grace and the revelation of Emmanuel, our mediator. Father, we thank Thee for the faith Thou hast given us, uniting us with Christ, and giving us also to believe in Him, to lay hold of Him and all His benefits. We pray that we might live out of that knowledge of belonging to Thee, in our faithful Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.